Have you heard about our latest subscription offer? Subscribe to an Irish Examiner annual subscription today and receive a free pair of OneSonic earphones valued at $79.99. Stay informed with our award-winning journalism and enjoy your favourite podcasts in premium sound. Visit irishexaminer.com forward slash earphones to subscribe now. Hurry, this offer won't last long. Terms and conditions apply. Offer available while stocks last. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're very welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast. Every week, this podcast will bring you a slice of current affairs you might find engaging and informative. We look at the big stories of the week. And we also hope to delve into some of the off-agenda stories that we've featured in the Irish Examiner and our unique interpretation of those stories. Today, I'm joined by TD Paul Murphy, who is fronting up a new organisation, RISE. Paul Murphy has a high profile. Uh, It seems like he's been around forever, but he's only actually been a TD for the last five years. Prior to that, he'd been an MEP, co-opted to Joe Higgins' seat after Joe was elected to the Dáil. Paul Murphy won his seat in a by-election in Dublin South West in 2014 in a contest that I suppose has been regarded as crucial in terms of the water charge protests that were on at the time. Sinn Féin had been expected to win it, but it was retrospectively perceived that the party was regarded as not being tough enough in protesting water charges, and through that gap went Mr Murphy. Uh, we know what happened after that and the rest is history in terms of the way the, the effect the water charge protest had on the body politic in general. In June 2017, Murphy and five other defendants were found not guilty at Dublin Circuit Criminal Court of false imprisonment of former Taunishta Joan Burton and her assistant at a water charge protest in 2014 also. Last month, Paul announced that he was leaving Solidarity, which had originally been the Socialist Party, and was setting up a new entity called RISE. RISE held its first public meeting last Saturday. Paul, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. How did your first public meeting go? Went well. Um, An engaging discussion uh, around the ideas of a Green New Deal for Ireland. Um, We had a guy called Ben Lennon over from British Labour for a Green New Deal. They got a very good motion passed through a Labour conference. It's now clearly going to be an important part of the Jeremy Corbyn uh, election campaign, which has since become underway. Um, And it was good. I think there was enthusiasm for the idea of a new project on the left, the idea of bringing the question of avoiding climate catastrophe front and centre, the question of intertwining the struggle against climate injustice, with the struggle against social injustice and coming up with kind of a positive 
programme of an alternative and a vision for people about how society could be organised differently that would improve people's lives, um, but also avoid this catastrophe that we are facing. Is that emphasis on climate change the main difference between RISE, the new organisation you're involved in, and Solidarity slash Socialist Party, which you left, and I think it's fair to say was your um, was your party since you entered politics as a very young man. That's, that's true. Um, I'm, I'm not sure it is the main difference. Uh, I mean, I, I think we will advocate a Green New Deal uh, with socialist policies. I think the Socialist Party probably won't, and that was part of the debate about whether you'd use that kind of formulation. When you say a Green New Deal, Paul, what exactly? Yeah, so I mean, the idea of a Green New Deal, it's been around for actually quite a while, but it's caught on in the last couple of years after a movement called the, the Sunrise Movement in the US began to advocate for it. Then it was taken up by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic and Democratic Socialist of America, a congresswoman. She advocated it's become quite popular. And then since then, it's kind of spread across the, the globe. Um, I think the reason that there's some on the left who would be hesitant about using the term is because while the FDR New Deal from the early 30s was introduced from popular pressure from below and was opposed by the Franklin D. Roosevelt Roosevelt in the United States. He was trying to get out of the the Great Depression and also to tackle environmental issues in the the Dust Bowl at at that time. Um, But it ultimately was a deal to save capitalism as opposed to overthrow it. But we think that the popularity of the term is a good thing and we think socialists should use that term and then fill it with a content which is anti-capitalist and socialist. And so the kind of five points in headlines Green New Deal that we're advocating in, in Ireland. Um, and we're still working on a motion to bring about any discussion with people. But effectively, number one, free green and frequent public transport. Uh, number two, a massive green jobs program, which is both things like retrofitting green energy, but also care jobs like the health service, childcare, etc. Uh, three is a move to sustainable agriculture, which means moving away from beef and dairy and tackling the power of the beef barons. Four is a four-day week without loss of pay, uh, which could save up to 16% uh, in carbon emissions. And five is... Carbon emissions by people not going to work. People not going to work and working and the emissions that come from that. Um, And five, democratic public ownership of the key sections of the economy so that we can plan. Because if we stick with a market for-profit economy, we are not going to turn our economies and societies around towards being net zero carbon. So, so that idea have. of public ownership, I suppose, in, in, in most areas of the economy, you, you're coming at it from the context of a Green New Deal as opposed to what you might call the traditional socialist approach towards it. Is, is that fair? I mean, we think it's a good idea to put forward socialist ideas today in a way that connects it absolutely to the, the most urgent crisis facing humanity. Um Obviously, such a deal also has to tackle, for example, I mean, the most urgent issue facing people right now in this country is homelessness. But part of a Green New Deal is saying that you build 100,000 homes, public homes, uh, to a near zero carbon standard um, over the course of three years it and sounds, move to decommodify housing. It sounds very like what the Green Party are about. Unfortunately not. Uh, unfortunately, the Green Party, for example, don't call for free public transport. The Green I've P- heard them suggest, I don't, may not be official policy, but I've heard some of their representatives saying it would be a good idea. But Yeah, I mean, they officially don't call for it. They don't have the idea of a green uh, jobs uh, programme. They obviously don't have the idea of public ownership. Um, I'm not sure about uh, the green jobs idea I, either. I you should go on their website, people, and right, check it right. out. Unfortunately, I mean, I think there's many very good people inside the Green Party. Uh, I think, obviously, Saoirse McHugh 
you know, describes herself as an eco-socialist, like we would describe ourselves, has been very critical of the orientation towards coalition with the right-wing parties. Um, but on paper, the Green Party is quite a moderate Green Party, even relative to other Green Parties around Are you saying, the world. suggesting moderate in terms of tackling climate justice and climate yeah, change? It's, it's completely inadequate. That's that's the reality. Like, But is it inadequate around, or is it realistic? Well, what's realistic is that we're heading for a disaster. And that disaster won't be felt hugely by me or you in the next 10 or 20 years. But if where we are living in the advanced capitalist world doesn't dramatically change within 10 or 20 years, well, then very dramatic catastrophic changes are built in to no the system. No question, and it's already being felt in parts of the mm-hmm. developing world. But the point I'm making is this in terms of whether or not it's realistic. In order to bring about change, and what you're talking about is radical change, radical change that I'd say, I'd suggest perhaps a growing constituency, a small but still growing constituency would be in favour of. In order to bring that about, you have to do it in the context of uh, politics, in the context of bringing people with you. And whereas you say that... Um, for example, I mentioned the Green Party, that their manifesto is is not uh, serious or radical enough. Another way of looking at that is that they're putting it in the context of their chances of getting it through a political system where, let's face it, we have democracy and therefore you have to bring a lot of people with you. You, you do have to bring people with you. But I, I think the way you bring people with you is to put out a bold, transformative vision of how society could be different. Because anything less than that is simply not adequate. I mean, if we continue on the trajectory that we're on, we know that we're 11 years away from 1.5 degree rises. The promises around the world are of governments would bring us to three or four degrees and the actual actions of governments would bring us to between four and six degrees. It's, it's an absolute catastrophe. And so fundamental transformative change is needed. It's the only way to avoid it, uh, to avoid that that future. And if if you kind of go along with this, well, we'll be pragmatic, get what we can done, for get 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 what we can through. The logic of that is that after the next election, the Green Party will go into coalition with Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, whoever has the numbers and is looking for them. And what will happen after that is Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael will use the Green Party as an excuse to bring in austerity measures with a green coloration, because I think we're likely to see a new economic crisis, and that will turn significant numbers of people off the whole idea of doing anything about climate change. It will alienate ordinary people from that. And the same will happen to the Green Party that happened last time, which is that their own support base will be disillusioned. And so I think we have to you know, stand for radical change and fight for radical change and fight for a left, uh, a red-green uh, government to, to okay. transform society. And as you, as you say, fighting for radical change, that's grand. But do you have any interest in going into power, being in a position to make those changes? Yes, um, but do, you, I, I do, think, do you think you have a realistic prospect without compromise of what is, is represented as, as, as the driving force of, of your organisation, right? Yeah, yes, again. Um, I think being in position to implement these changes means not going into coalition with the establishment parties. I think that's the illusion of power. So what's the alternative? You, the, the alternative is to try and win victories in the here and now, like we as you know, ordinary people have won big victories in the last number of years against a weak government, water charges, repeal, 12 weeks, marriage equality. Well, um, no, the second two of those, in fairness, repeal and marriage equality, I think it has to be said all of the main parties were in favour of that. They were slower coming to it, absolutely, but I don't think this was dragged in against their wishes. But I, I think it was. I think right. um, 
As in, I mean, you, you just look two years before the referendum, Micheál Martin wasn't even in favour of the right to abortion in cases of rape. Uh, Leo Varadkar, again, two years before the referendum, had a very conservative position. So what, why did they change? And Citizens' Assembly, what came out of that was a lot mm-hmm. of it, and they regarded that as being very important. But yes, but, 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 but the point is that, anyway, yeah. that that change was driven from below by a shift, dramatic shift in societal attitudes and a movement, and those two things are connected. There being a movement shifts societal attitudes. So you win victories in the here and now. Right now, I think we could have a campaign to fight for free public transport in individual cities or in the country as a whole. And that has a chance of victory. I mean, in over 100 cities around the world... It definitely does. I've transport. heard suggestions that it should be introduced initially for Christmas and that would seem like a very good idea. I don't think you would have massive opposition to that, for example, in general terms. So I, I think we fight for things now. We seek to build movements and build power of ordinary people to, to win those things. And then in doing so, you're also building your, your strength. You're building what needs to be, I think, a, a broad mass left party in this country that can seriously challenge for power. And I think things can change very quickly. Obviously, right now, the you know, prospects for the radical left going into the next general election aren't particularly good. There's clearly no it's About seven, chance. eight seats possibly would be from the starting base around that, isn't it? Yeah. If you include one or two independents. Yes, might, yeah. exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think we can realistically say to people there's going to be a radical left-wing government after the next uh, election. But you look around the world, you look how it seems to me that there is like a new wave of global revolt underway, similar to what was kind of initiated by what was called the Arab Spring. I mean, right now you have protests, massive protests in Chile, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Hong Kong. Um, You have the school student climate strike protests right around the world. And I think those things can come to Ireland again, like we had a mass movement around the water charges in relatively short space of time and people can shift dramatically to the left. They can also shift dramatically to the right. But like the basic trend of politics being the the decline and ultimately the collapse of what could be called the extreme centre of politics around the world is going to continue. It's been partially arrested in, in Ireland. On so the far, of, the majority of change has been on the right. It's been extreme right-wing populism. I, I, you definitely have that. I mean, you have you know Bolsonaro in, in Brazil who was very definitely implicated the other day in the murder of yeah, Mariela Franco well, as a socialist. Wait and see, but I mean, he's but, certainly not a savoury character one it, way or the other. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You've got Trump, you've got Farage, no yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. But there is the other side of the coin, which is the popularity of Bernie Sanders, the popularity of AOC, the popularity of Jeremy Corbyn, the popularity of Mélenchon France. I think both radical left and radical right have opportunities for growth in the context of a deep alienation with the political system, um, in the context where the crisis went on so far and so long that kind of both traditional parties of capitalism right around the world had a chance to be in power, both did the same thing and demonstrated that they're no alternative. And now with the, you know, the environmental crisis is only going to get worse and worse and the material basis for a movement against it in general will increase. There'll be more and more of a basis to it. But Paul, there's a reality. There's a reality. And the reality is, first of all, as you rightly point out, there's an urgency in terms of climate change. No question about that. So we're talking about we have 10, 15 years, not to be too dramatic, but to save the world, Mm -hmm. as they used to say. Do you honestly think that the chances of getting to a point where you can have what you would call a radical left stroke green government um, in situ within that time frame, as opposed to whatever chance you have that should you and, and some of your affiliated parties, for instance, or parties that you, 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 you'd you identify with, should you have a chance of going into government with a one of the 
centre right wing parties that you would spurn that chance in order to keep the purity of your politics rather than actually going in and affecting some level of change, if not the level that you, you, you aspire to do? No, not to protect some, you know, abstract purity, but actually to achieve more change more effectively. Yes, I think the left should definitively rule out coalition with the right. Um, because, like, the point about the victories that have been won over the last years, they weren't won from a position of government. They were won from a position of movements. And I think with the radical left playing an important role in the doll as being a voice for those movements, say on water charges, the advocacy of non-payment, which became a key uh, tactic. Um, I think that's better. And then striving from there to fight for a left government. Um, I, I obviously can't say definitively that we're going to achieve it. What I think I can say fairly confidently is that either we will achieve this sort of radical change within the next few decades or we're facing a huge catastrophe. I mean, Naomi Klein makes the point in her new book on fire that we're living at the last possible moment where lives can be saved on a massive scale. And Yeah, unless something comes along, but that's the way it stands at the moment. But you mentioned the water charges. What did that change? Defeated the water charges. Uh, it stopped the process towards water But in terms of political culture, in uh-huh. terms of people um, wanting a change, as you would see it, towards the left or towards the radical left, what did it change in that regard? Well, I think it did lead to quite a deep politicisation in quite wide sections of the working class. Um, and I think there was an opportunity, which was an opportunity missed at the kind of height of the anti-water charges movement, to launch a broad left party which could have encompassed the different trends of the radical left um, But you were talking about a broad left party and you're talking mm-hmm. in the context of you having left mm-hmm. the party to set up another uh, to make it more fragmented to put it that way uh, I think sometimes unfortunately you have to take a step back in order to be able to take a step forward it, it, Leaving the Socialist Party wasn't a decision we took lightly precisely for that reason like it's for very good reasons that the vast majority of people look at the left and think Jesus you know, why aren't you more united? People instinctively yearn for unity and they're right to do so. Unity doesn't have to mean that everyone agrees with each other. Oh, no. Um, it means that you can create a kind of a broad democratic left and socialist party where different trends can exist, where they can disagree with each other within a certain framework, have the debates out in a you know, fraternal way and then make decisions. But the problem is that the, the, the mass in the middle, if you want to put it that way, who would be your potential constituency if they look at it and they see this fragmentation, mm-hmm. surely someone were going to say, well, if they can't get it together like that in opposition, what are they going to be like in government? If, do you know what I mean? I mean, look, but le- sure. le- leaving that aside, um, again, going back to the water charges, is there um, an issue, for example, naturally you still advocate nobody's charged for water, yet at the same time you've heightened concern for the environment, uh, a lot of people would say water is a very precious resource and as long as there, it is free, as long as there is no charge for it, that resource will not be treated with the respect it needs to be treated with, particularly in the current literally environment. I think that um, there isn't empirical evidence for that. I mean, the government says that because they want to... That people... Give, that, that people use more water because there's no charge at the point of use. But policy, so, it's human, it's... it's well, it uh, might be, but look at... economists, in every sure. line, in everything, this is not about water, in everything, 
that is, is, is inevitably the case. Well, you, you can compare the case of, of Ireland and Britain, which obviously, you know, climate-wise is very similar. In Britain, they have water charges, they have water privatisation, it's a disaster, and they use more water per person uh, to quite a substantial degree relative to in Ireland where we, we don't have charges. I think there's a decommodifying things, making things a public good as opposed to a commodity is, in my opinion, like a big step forward and something... Well, it can be a public good and be charged for it. It can, it can be put in the constitution that it remains in public ownership. Sure. Um, but I, I think, for example, we're meant to have, you know, free education in this country. Um, and that's a good thing. Obviously, it, it's not actually free because of the voluntary contributions and so on that people have to, in the books and everything else. But it's a good thing that you, in theory, have free education. It's a good thing that, in theory, have free public health care. And I think socialists should be and environmentalists, I think, should be trying to take things out of the marketplaces, out of being commodities. So, for example, public transport. You know, some people, I, would, I did a podcast the other day with someone who was saying, well, if you have a limited amount of money, you're better off investing it in the frequency of the transport as opposed to it being free. And I'm for, there needs to be increased frequency, particularly if you're going to make it free, because otherwise the buses are going to be full. But the kind of symbolic significance of making something not a commodity anymore, I think may, means that people view it in a different way, that it's something that society has a kind of buy-in for, it's public transport or water or housing or whatever, and we need to take things out of the marketplace. I think the, the kind of most current example of this is, is the carbon tax. And there's a debate inside the environmental movement about whether to be for or against the carbon tax. I don't think anyone in the environmental movement thinks that the carbon tax is the answer because it's just very clearly There's not. No, there is no single answer. Yeah, I mean, but I'm against the carbon tax. I think the environmental movement should be against the carbon tax. That's the side of the debate I would be on. And people suggest that's because it's a populist thing to do as opposed to a policy soundly based on on the best way to tackle climate change. But I think that um, it isn't the best way to tackle climate change and isn't even a significant contribution to it. So international studies demonstrate you need 110 years to have the kind of impact that we need to have with the carbon tax. We don't have 110 years. We have... 10 or 15 years. The other thing is that, I mean, around the world, some of the biggest lobbyists now for carbon taxes are the fossil fuel companies. In Canada and the US, they're lobbying heavily because they see it. They see the governments are under pressure to do something about climate change. They fear action on what is necessary, which is that they need to leave the trillions of dollars and euros worth of carbon that they own in the ground which is a massive cost to them. That's that's what has to happen. That's the key thing that has to happen. And so they're putting forward these other things, which put the burden onto ordinary people, um, as a way of avoiding that, of avoiding a Green New Deal. And the third reason is I think that it will brightly and understandably turn people off. I mean, I, I've been doing kind of stalls, so giving out leaflets and getting people to sign petitions in recent days in, in Tala um, for we're having our Green New Deal meeting on Monday night. And... I actually met a number of ordinary people who are semi-climate change deniers and the, the, the kind of logic of it seems to be that they're against what the government's proposing, they're against the carbon tax and then are kind of searching for a reason as to why to be against it. And when you explain to people, no, climate change is real, here's the evidence for it, but ordinary people don't have to pay the price for it. It's the 100 corporations who are responsible for 71% of the greenhouse gas emissions. They're the ones who need to pay. Then I think you can win that argument with people. But I think if you go for carbon tax type policies, you're pushing people into the arms of the climate change deniers. Okay. Now, you've mentioned the water charges a couple of times. As you said, and I think as I said in the intro, it was a significant uh, development, particularly in terms of your profile, in terms of that of 
of uh, Solidarity Party, I think a lot of people would say that uh, to a large extent you did lead it. One fallout from that was the other thing I mentioned at the end, at the outset, the uh, the trial for the false imprisonment for of John Burton and her assistant. And it has to be said that there are issues around the way that trial, not the way the trial was conducted, but what came out in the trial about some of the issues around what happened on the day and some of the uh, positions taken by the Gardaí. And, and there's definitely things around that. But in terms of the thing itself, have you ever apologised to John Burton? No, definitely not. Do you think she deserves an apology? No, I think John Burden, I think working class people who were betrayed by the Labour Party, including through the imposition of water charges and the betrayal of their election promises, deserve an apology from John Burden. I don't think that they'll get it, but I think that that's the direction that the apology should be coming. But do you accept that what happened on, on that day would have been a frightening experience for her and her assistant, another woman? Um, I, I don't, um, because I, I think there's there's video evidence throughout the course of the day from inside the car where John Burton was, and it's, it's, it's kind of spaced conveniently throughout the course of the day, and at no point in the day does it suggest that Joan Burton was frightened. Ah, Instead, well, no, it, it suggests it that she was know, calculating that about using it on social media. That, do, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, to be fair. If, if anybody else was in that scenario, particularly anybody involved in politics, they would be putting on the brave face and trying to make out this wasn't a big deal, I think. Looking at it from the outside, two women in a car like that under those circumstances, notwithstanding the presence of Gardaí there as well, I think it would be reasonable to suggest they could well have been extremely frightened at what was going on and whether or not that was an appropriate form of protest at that time. I think people have the right to protest. I think people have the right to have sit-down protest um, that disturbs and gets in the way of the operation of government ministers. I think people Intimidates? Have, have they a right to uh, do No, that? I don't think people have the right to, in, to intimidate people and people shouldn't be intimidated. Um, but the, the essence of what that protest was was a slow march and a sit-down protest, um, the kind of protests that have happened many times in the past. And I think, you know, the most, without even getting into what happened in terms of the guard evidence being contradicted by the video and so on, without even getting into that, I think the most kind of sinister thing about it is the fact that People were at a peaceful protest um, and you can criticise, you know, what happened at the protest mm. or whatever and fine. And that's a reasonable debate to have. But the idea that people could be arrested and charged with false imprisonment because of a minister being delayed is really Anna dangerous Anna wasn't delayed, stuff. no. no. Well, she was delayed, yeah, for oh, a few she, hours. It was, but uh, of course she was delayed, but that's not what was at issue. What was the issue was she was impeded from moving. The car was surrounded by a very large crowd that were quite obviously hostile towards her and I think that was the essence of it. I'm not mm-hmm. saying one way or the other and I don't, mm-hmm. the, the court heard the whole evidence and I wouldn't dream of, of contradicting anything the jury said, but in terms of bringing the charges... The other issue, as you mentioned in that, there was two other issues actually in relation to that. One, in terms of the Garda conduct, have you ever been contacted subsequently by the Garda in relation to the outcome of any inquiry or has it been conveyed to you about, I think there's supposed to be an internal inquiry about how the Garda had uh, Yeah, I'm trying to think back. So there was an internal inquiry of some sort. There was kind of a review and lessons learned and they had some public hearings as part of the kind of engagements with the ombudsman, I think, in Dublin Castle, and I went along to a couple of them. But as far as I remember, their lessons learned is like various things about crowd control and things like that, as opposed to Gardaí not right. concocting a story. The other issue that arose there was the use of social media while the trial was on, and mm-hmm. this was very obvious. And again, a question could be raised as to whether 
this was actually interfere irrespective of what one may think about the process in terms of how it got there. Nevertheless, you're talking about a trial, uh, the sanctity of the jury within that, mm-hmm. and outside that, you had social media all over, largely commentary. Some of it was just relaying the evidence, but not through a neutral lens by any means. Mm-hmm. Is that not a very worrying issue? Well, we certainly felt that, you're right, that the coverage that came out from the mainstream media was biased from the trial. And it is an interesting thing being in a trial where, you know, you, every day you've got evidence Paul, are you suggesting presented. that the coverage from the mainstream media was more biased than what was going on in social media? Yes. Yes, I am. I've worked down yeah. the courts. I don't yeah. work down there on a full-time basis. But that, to me, to be fair to you, is a slur on court reporters who have a long tradition of going down there and giving what they believe to be the best version of what they've heard Sure, the day. but it was extremely a different, a quite different picture would emerge from someone who was reading particular papers um, than someone who sat in the court on each daily basis. And I, I wasn't looking for well, a version that gave our, our story. I mean, we, we had to, our lawyer had to repeatedly raise it in court about the bias that was coming out in particular, some particular uh, newspapers. So yes, I, I think there was an issue of, of bias. I think in terms of the, say, the, the reporting that was done by the campaign, the Jobstown Not Guilty campaign, um, that was aimed at the public. It wasn't aimed at the jury. And it doesn't matter who was aimed at. It was still out there. It's, it's still put out there. And sure, but, but the point is, in terms of could it have influenced the jury? One, the jury is obviously instructed not to be watching oh. any of that stuff. But two, that stuff was all the stuff that the jury was seeing. It wasn't anything, you know what I mean? The video evidence that was, or the videos that were played on social media through the campaign were the ones that the jury had seen in the course of, of that day. So the, the jury, just like anyone who sat through the entire case, had the best view of it, of anybody. So, and you, so be, you, don't, you don't think there was any interference with, uh, with due process in relation to what was done on social media? None, none whatsoever. I mean, the, the jury saw it all, they witnessed it, and they obviously had a you know, very swift, um, I can't remember, it was a couple of hours and unanimous. Oh, yeah, yeah, not, yeah, not, no not question about this. Yeah, that, but that's neither here nor there. It's just a question of uh-huh. whether there was a potential for bias through that. But uh, you, 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 you're suggesting that there was, as far as you were concerned, the social media activity did not interfere yeah. with the process. It, because it didn't interfere and didn't aim at and, and it wouldn't have affected any member of the jury here who say a jury did juror did go on social media and saw a video. Sure, it's just a video that they saw already that day. They're not getting any extra information. It's not it's precisely because we felt that the mainstream media was not publishing some of the things that were happening or re- re- appropriately reporting some of the things that? that were happening. Um I think there certainly are elements in the media who share a worldview with the political establishment, um, which were concerned by. I think Jobstown in some ways kind of encapsulated the fear of the mob. The word mob was used quite a lot around Jobstown and the idea that, you know, these people, supposedly kind of egged on by me, an outside agitator, which wasn't accurate. I mean, the protest was already going on by the time I arrived. Um were engaging in politics in kind of a raucous, inappropriate way. And they had a bias against it. I think it was a genuine bias is how they felt about it. It's not some... court reporters. Yes, some of the court reporters. Not all of the court reporters, but some of the court reporters, yeah. Right, well, if that's uh, that's, that's your opinion, I'd have to say I would disagree vehemently with it, but in fairness, you're you're entitled to your opinion. Tell me yourself, um, how did you get involved with the Socialist Party? 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I became a socialist probably when I was 15 uh, at the time of the anti-globalization movement. There's things like the Battle of Seattle and stuff going on at the time. There's many protests aimed at the WTO, the IMF, um, around issues of kind of global injustice, kind of free trade, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of radicalized by that, became a socialist. Um, there was a number of a number of us in my school who, who would have been socialists and kind of came together. And, and that then, was St. Michael's. Yeah, St. Killian's. St. Killian's. Yeah. School. Excuse me, yeah. Okay. That, that's private school. It is. And, and it's just, and, and, and perfect, the only re- reason is some people would find it unusual somebody from that background ending up in what you would call radical socialism. Is it? Maybe it's not that unusual. Yeah, I think it's not that unusual. Um, I think obviously the majority of members of the Socialist Party, the majority of members of RISE are ordinary working class people, like the vast majority of people in, in society. Um, but yeah, people go to whatever school and can come out with what any idea. Absolutely. Have you been full time uh, involved in politics more or less since you finished college? Basically, yes. Um, I mean, I, I taught, I did, did a PhD, I started a PhD, I didn't finish it, remains unfinished. Uh, one day I might finish it. Um, and I taught in, I did like tutorials and so on in, in university. But basically I was full-time campaigning with the, the Socialist Party and then moved to Brussels to work with Joe in the European Parliament, then took over from from Joe and then stood in the by-elections in 2014. And do you want to do anything outside of politics in terms of full-time? I mean, do you have any ambitions to... I mean, I know, for instance, I've spoken to other politicians who say, look, I'm not going to be here when I'm 50. I'm going to do A, B and C. Do you see a future outside so radical socialism in politics? Well, I, I never saw a future and I never got involved in socialist politics. I, I never envisaged the idea of being a TD or an MEP. It wasn't what I was into at all. I saw myself as a campaigner, as an organiser, etc. Um, and I think in some ways, that's the role I would be more comfortable in as opposed to being like a public figure. Um, so you never know if, if our movement develops to the point that we have other public figures and it's not necessary for me to have like, you know, this high profile and to try and use it to popularize socialist ideas, then I would prefer to be off editing a socialist magazine or a website or whatever. But I, I do see myself, you know, as much as I can committing the time I have to, to fight for socialist change because I just think it, that's it's like... You know, Rosa Luxemburg famously said socialism or barbarism, and that, that can be used in a very kind of glib way. But it's a bit difficult to avoid that that's the conclusion that faces us in terms of barbarism, in terms of climate catastrophe, and in terms of the kind of eco-authoritarianism or eco-fascism well, that will come with it. climate change is not necessarily a socialist solution to climate change, but it's, it's one prism through which it can be tackled. One final thing. In a world where you hadn't got into politics, what would you have seen yourself doing now? So no, I, I studied law um, with the view to becoming. You could have been a barrister. down the I could have been a barrister, raking it in. You know, none of that old socialist <laughs> stuff you were down there. Well, I did find it terribly boring, so I'm not sure <laughs> I would have done it. Uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't mind being um, an academic uh, of some sort. Uh, you know, doing research. Yeah, explaining ideas, yeah, things like that. Well, yeah. 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 Paul Murphy, listen. Thank you very much for joining us today, and good luck with your new organisation, Rise. Thank you. That's it from us today, folks. Uh, I'd like to thank producer Declan Conlon and JJ Vernon on sound. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify and you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on the Twitter machine at at mickcliff. See you again.